Hey, listeners. Today I speak with Nicole Allen. Nicole is the director of Open Education for Spark. In this role, she leads Spark's work to advance openness in education, which includes a robust state and federal policy program, a broad librarian community of practice, and a leadership program for OER librarians. Spark is a global coalition committed to making open the default for research and education. Spark empowers people to solve big problems and make new discoveries through the adoption of policies and practices that advance open access, open data, and open education. Learn more at sparkopen.org. That's sparkopen.org. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview. Uh, I had a blast at your, well, not, I don't know if a blast is the right word. I learned a lot at your workshop when you visited New Orleans at Xavier. So I was, I was hoping if you could quick, maybe quickly introduce who you are to the listeners and what the purpose of uh, Spark is. So thanks so much for that. Uh, it's great to chat with you again. I was uh, suffering from a pretty severe cold during the workshop, so I'm actually glad that we're talking after my voice is recovered. Uh, but I do want to warn you that I may cough, and uh, apologies in advance for that. <laughs> I can edit it out. So, uh, oh, fantastic. Spark is a international alliance of academic and research libraries that works to make open the defaults in research and education. My background is kind of interesting. I've actually been working on this issue for my entire career since I was an undergraduate student 13 years ago, frustrated with the high cost of textbooks. I just you know, believe that uh, today's world textbook costs shouldn't be as high as they are and, and shouldn't be a barrier to getting an education and have worked with students and libraries and, and, and universities to help break down some of those barriers. Yeah, and the cost of textbooks have only gotten higher. It's, um, it's becoming a real issue with students across the country. Uh, they, there are some students, I believe you even mentioned it, at our previous discussion, who have to choose between paying their utilities or getting their textbooks? Yeah, it's it's one of those underestimated expenses for students. They a lot of times are getting financial aid or grants to support the tuition costs and maybe living expenses. And then one of the last things you need to do before you go to class is you need to buy those textbooks. So. You know, $100, $200, $500 worth of materials can be a huge financial hit for students, especially since it's often an out-of-pocket cost. And what we've seen, so, uh, you know, you mentioned the prices have gone up. Prices have actually doubled since I was in college, and I was frustrated with the, with the high cost. And, and so were the, the students I, I went to school with. And uh, it's getting to the point where a lot of students don't buy all of their required textbooks because those costs are too high. So uh, sharing with other, other students or buying older editions, international editions, you know, there's a lot of pirating that goes on for digital materials. And in today's world, you, you practically need higher education to get higher paying jobs and be able to pay back all of those student loans. And yet there's this whole set of materials that are actually sometimes holding students back rather than helping them learn. Yes, it, it does feel like almost uh, every milestone that we are pushed towards as we grow up is meant to make us broke at this point in time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, higher education is definitely one of those areas where 
costs have just ballooned and where our society was built at a time where a college degree was, you know, affordable and attainable with our uh, parents' generation, uh, you know, speaking of as a millennial. And now the the tuition has just gotten so high that it's, it's, it's not the same as it used to be. And it puts so much pressure on students who are going to college today, whether that's, you know, people who, who have recently graduated high school uh, and are younger or people who are going back uh, later in life to get higher education and uh, earn a higher degree to, to get one of those higher paying jobs. So what are some of the obstacles that your organization faces in implementing this uh, open educational resource material too? Because obviously the students are on board with it. If you tell a student, hey, we want to give you your textbooks for free, they're not just enthusiastic about it. They're probably going out and trying to study more. So who are the gatekeepers at this point in time that uh, we should be directing our energy towards? So there's this whole movement for creating open educational materials or uh, textbooks and other materials that are freely available under an open license that anybody can not only use for free, but actually download, edit, and share to better serve students locally. And it's gotten a lot of traction. So it, the workshop you attended, I shared uh, my story of working with students over 10 years ago to try to get the word out about this idea when uh, there was that reaction of, yeah, right, there's no free lunch or there's no way textbooks can be free. But the reality is that today, uh, more than one in 10 professors say that they're using uh, some kind of open educational resource as a required material. Uh, you know, it's not always a, a full textbook and not always completely free for students, but the uptake has really gained momentum. In terms of barriers, there are a few. So in a broader sense, the culture of higher education and the incentive structures that exist are still very much rooted in the analog print-based type world where professors are rewarded for research and publications based on you know, maybe the journal they publish in or the publisher that they, they submit their materials to, as opposed to necessarily the, the actual uh, impact of the research in the world. And there's a lot of updating to do in terms of the, the policies and incentives to help recognize some of the ways that scholarship and educational materials are impacting students in, in today's world. So, so, oh, sorry, continue. Go right ahead. I was yeah. going to say, so it seems like um, one of the big issues is our education system has not updated, though schools and campuses have obviously updated their amenities. The education itself has not updated from a century ago. And the people who are responsible for this are what? Are they ignorant to the knowledge or are they content with the money they're making from the current industry? Higher education is a very traditional industry. You know, it's based on the idea of passing down knowledge. So it is very steeped in the in the traditions of the ways that things have always worked and, and things do change slowly. And there are reasons for that. And we are sort of finally starting to see higher ed start to embrace digital technology, not just in a uh, systemic way, but actually in a strategic way where they're thinking about uh, ways, like, and libraries are really leading these conversations on campus in terms of le leveraging digital technology to expand access to knowledge and expand 
the visibility of the the scholarship that's happening on campuses. So change is happening, and I think specifically with course materials, we are in a period of of sort of flux. Uh, even just in the last couple of years, as open educational resources have started to gain traction, it has pushed those traditional publishing companies, who are the ones that are making the bazillions of dollars on students' backs, to start offering new models. Uh, the one that gets the most visibility is, is called inclusive access, where students are basically auto-charged a fee for their textbooks as opposed to going out and buying them. So the fee is less than maybe a buying a new print copy, but isn't necessarily affordable for students anyway. So it's not necessarily that things are always getting better, but they are changing. And this time of disruption is a really important opportunity for innovation and entrepreneurship and opportunities for uh, people who haven't been fully served by the traditional system to be able to get in and participate. So who are currently some of your strongest allies in this fight? Where is a lot of the energy coming from to help push this? Because I assume you need legislative (coughs) support to finally get... uh, your final results. So who are some of your most energized allies who are really forcing the movement forward? Some of the projects that are really leading this forward are the OpenStax project out of Rice University, which has published more than 20 peer-reviewed open textbooks for high enrollment subjects, like your principles of economics and college physics and, you know, those kinds of books that are used by hundreds of thousands of students every year and cost hundreds of dollars apiece. And those books have gained market share pretty rapidly and are directly competing against sort of the canonical traditional publisher materials. Uh, Some studies have found that, you know, their market share is over 10% in some of the fields. So it's really exciting to see that just like those alternatives actually be out there. Uh, We also work very closely with a, a student organization called the Student Public Interest Research Groups. Uh, which is actually the organization where I started my career. And they've been working with student governments across the country to help advocate for open textbooks on their campuses to raise faculty awareness. So at the policy level, uh, what's great is that this issue is bipartisan. You know, there's recognition on all sides of the aisle that the cost of textbooks is a barrier and that there is this market failure in the way that the the textbook system operates. And we've been able to pass uh, legislation that's put federal funding toward the development of open textbooks through a Department of Education grant program. A total of $10 million has been sent out to projects that will expand the use of open textbooks on campus. And we're also seeing a lot of interest from states, uh, everywhere from uh, states like North Dakota that invested something like $100,000 in an open educational resources program. And their state auditor just found that it saves students between 10 and 20 times that amount of money at least. And also states like Georgia that have been investing in statewide programs with their public university system and uh, again, have generated huge returns on investment in terms of student savings as part of strategic technology initiatives. So I know it's been a very difficult fight for you, um, going back to your origins in this fight, but are there enough small victories going around on around the country then that's giving you optimism moving forward? 
advocacy is a journey and uh, on a day-to-day level, it can feel like progress isn't happening. But when I look back, I, I have the benefit of, of being able to look back on a, on a 13-year career and reflect on where things started. And it's truly transformational where we are today. You know, we're not done. There's still a long way to go. There's still a lot of students who are struggling getting access to their materials. There's so much potential to actually be able to use these materials in innovative ways that improve teaching and learning. But we are at a point where open educational resources are here to stay. This is a movement that has gained a foothold in the market and is a game changer in the way that textbooks are bought and sold. And where we see the future going is just we need higher ed institutions and faculty to really think about strategic ways to leverage openness to ensure the future remains in their control rather than continuing to sort of outsource a lot of these processes to external entities that don't necessarily have students' interests at the core of their mission in the way that universities do. So this leads me then to two questions. I'll I'll ask them, you can answer them in whatever order you uh, desire. It seems like, for one, uh, there are multiple layers to this fight. So each time you make another breakthrough, you face another uh, target or another adversary. Um, who, who, is the, um, I, who, who is the next target that you have to go after or change the mind of? And is there one path that's sort of um, the fastest and most direct route to uh, national or even international implementation of these programs? And then my second question is, you said you're very far from ending this fight, but what does the ideal ending look like? What is a world where Spark gets everything that they're fighting for included in our legislation? So I want to see a world where everyone everywhere can get access to all of the knowledge that they want and be able to contribute and participate it in it in any way that they can imagine. So this fight is never going to be done. <laughs> and uh, I, I think what's exciting is that we're starting to see that happen in small ways over time. And I, I chuckled at, at your first question because I my uh, undergrad degree is in philosophy. So I was thinking about the Hegelian dialectic where, you know, one thing changes and then something else changes and it uh, uh, keeps uh, moving forward toward uh, a historical end, and oh, you know, the, the conflict and counter conflict. Yeah, sorry, I'm a little bit rusty, <laughs> uh, but uh, I feel like advocacy is like that in so many ways, and I do see the the struggle, especially that uh, the narrative of open educational resources and traditional expensive textbooks in the in the traditional publishing industry has been this sort of dialectic. Like at first it was, you know, the the only open education people out there saying, you know, this stuff can be free, we should all, you know, share our materials and the publisher saying like, no, that's never gonna happen. And then it was like we started to gain traction and there were real examples. And then the publishers were like, well, that's actually low quality. And then now we're at this point where uh, 
it, it's really gaining visibility. There are university presidents in support of the idea. There's Congress. And what we're seeing from publishers is actually a reversal where hands we offer open educational resources too. So all of the major publishers have offered some sort of like open educational resources project product, uh, which we don't actually consider open because students have to pay to get access to the free resources, which, you know, whatever. Uh, but they're calling it that. So they went, they want in on the action. And the other thing we're seeing is that some of the companies have really shifted their narrative where they're talking about how textbooks are so expensive and trying to market these digital alternatives that they're selling, like the inclusive access or subscription models as the solution. So when I think about the like articles and blog posts I wrote 10 years ago and look at some of the stuff that's coming out from, from companies like Cengage Learning, it looks the same, except what, what the publishing companies are saying is that you should just buy more of our stuff. So, uh, it, you know, it, it, we're, we're sort of in that um, uh, phase where things are going back and forth uh, a lot faster now. And it's going to be really interesting to see where things go from here. Do you feel like your team is big enough to handle the challenge or is it a pretty exhausting fight? Well, the open educational resources movement has thousands of people all over the world who care about this issue. And it's actually interesting. I've uh, uh, been thinking a lot about what makes the open education movement different from other uh, uh, change movements, whether it's social change or environmental uh, movements or, you know, other education reform focused movements. And I think what's really special about open is that it's something that people just see. I think the idea of openness has some sort of a, a <laughs> to go back again to philosophy and a priori, like meaning that um, exists in the world and then people come to see it. And it can be, you know, on one hand, it's frustrating to some open advocates when they see it so clearly and the people around them don't, don't really see, see the potential and the value of it yet. But it also is, is really exciting because uh, it means that over time, more and more people will come to look at the world in the way where we can do everything that's possible and we can remove these barriers. So I think the movement's just going to keep growing, and that's going to lead to faster change over time. Well, the movement is incredibly American. I mean, what better way to package the American dream than open access to any education that you want to get your hands on and improve your current station in life? Yeah, and when I, I was so I was saying before about how the issue is uh, by bipartisan. Uh, it, it, a lot of times when, when we talk about in advocacy trainings, the differences between framing for uh, uh, conservatives and liberals, with liberals, you talk about things in terms of justice and social justice and open, you know, helps make sure that, that, that everybody gets equal access to materials and helps promote equity. And then with conservatives, you talk more about freedom and liberty. And open is just as uh, uh, able to meet those kind of ends where it's enabling everyone everywhere to teach and learn in any way that they want to. 
and take control of their own education by getting access to materials that they can use. So uh, it, it, in many ways, the, it is very, very uh, in, in line with the, the founding principles of this country. But I should note that the movement is still very global as well. Oh, it's absolutely global. I was more just thinking about since you lobby Democrats yeah. and Republicans in the United States, I was focusing on a, our country. Um, do you have or does your office have, I want to say, loose scripts that um, they teach their uh, their new members to follow when they're pitching? So Spark is a membership organization. We have uh, over 200 academic and research libraries in the U.S. and Canada. And then we also work with networks of uh, affiliate organizations uh, all over the world, you know, Japan, Africa, Europe. And we provide a lot of different resources to our members to support their local advocacy on these issues. So that does include things like talking points and issue briefs. We also uh, do a lot of work to convene people and build communities of practice because in a lot of cases, it's all of the knowledge exists among the network and it's about connecting people together to share it with each other. That's fascinating. You actually offer like activist training sort of with the, with material that people can teach themselves and understand how to navigate the fight. Yeah. So one of the uh, really exciting initiatives that we've launched in the past couple of years is Spark's Open Education Leadership Program, which is a professional development uh, initiative that works with library professionals from our member libraries to help build them into sort of strong, confident advocates for open education that can lead initiatives on campus. Uh, as, a, as somebody who does not come from a library background, uh, one of the th things that I've observed about the library profession is that the mindset is often focused more on service than it is on, on advocacy initially. Like what you learn in library school is, you know, how to work with people to connect them to the information that they're seeking. And when it comes to open education, uh, there's actually that extra step of actually going outside the library and seeking allies and, and making arguments to convince people to get involved in work that, that you want to do that will ultimately you know, reach, reach those ends that, that libraries are always seeking to reach in terms of connecting people with information. So uh, the program is in its uh, second year and we're so excited at the uh, level of growth that we've seen among the librarians who are part of the program. It's really an example of how professional development is also evolving as a form of education and, uh, or continuing education and how open education is part of that in itself. Uh, the program has a curriculum that we've openly licensed and freely shared online so anybody can benefit from it whether you're enrolled in the program or not so for those listeners who maybe have heard this interview and want to get involved what's the fastest way to join the fight and maybe become a member of spark so for spark publishes a ton of information on our website about these issues and how you can get involved in advocating for them that's sparkopen.org 
So that's the first place to stop to check it out. Uh, also, if you're on Twitter, the hashtag OER, Open Educational Resources, there's a really lively community there. Uh, Twitter happens to be the platform where uh, the, the movement connects most, I think. So you can get involved in the conversation there. And I should note that there are actually going to be some exciting advocacy opportunities coming up this spring. So depending on what state you're in, there's a couple of state bills that are moving. And then we're also expecting a bill to be introduced in Congress uh, to support more federal funding for open textbooks. And uh, that's definitely something that you can reach out to your elected representatives in support of. Well, I just want to thank you so much for your time today. I, I really it was a pleasure getting to speak with you again, and I, uh, I really thank you for it. Well, it's been great chatting with you, and I, uh, I'm glad that I was able to share some information about a, a topic that is relevant to your community. Hey, listeners, just wanted to take a moment and thank you so much for listening to our show. Really, thank you so much. Your support truly means the world. If you like this podcast, please leave us a review. And if you're not already subscribed, you can find us on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Spotify, and Stitcher.